Will you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, James 3, and the guys have some Bibles, so as they make their way down the aisle, if you don't have a Bible with you, they'll get you one. It's marked to that passage we'll be looking at in James chapter 3, so you can follow along. Keep that Bible. As our gift to you, we want everybody to own a copy of the Scriptures. Our series in the book of James has been titled, as you see on the screen, Real Faith. And that's because the five chapters of this book are all about real, genuine, authentic faith and what it looks like. And we have seen that the word faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So that could be titled real belief. And so the idea is we say we believe certain things, but if that's what we truly believe, then it's going to show up in how we think and how we talk and in how we act, and thus be shown to be real and genuine and authentic. Now, it has been fully five weeks since we've been in our series in the book of James. Our last message was on October the 18th, and then uh, I was sick the following week. Second time in 11 years that I wasn't able to come, but we were able to have Dr. Combs fill in, and I know you all were blessed by his uh, ministry. And then uh, on the Sunday just before the election, we had a message that looked at what God says about government's responsibility as given by God and our responsibility to government. I was out of town the following week. Pastor Matt ministered the word then. And then uh, last week, we spent the entirety of this hour observing the Lord's table or communion. So now we return to our series in the book of James. And so I want to remind you, because it's been several weeks, of the context of the passage that we're going to consider from James chapter 3. At the end of chapter 1 of the book of James, verses 26 and 27 really give the theme of the following four chapters. Those verses say, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And in those theme verses, James is saying, if our religion, our profession is real, authentic, and genuine, then it will be evidenced in carefulness in relation to our speech, in compassion in relation to others, and in cleanliness in relation to the world. And then chapters 2 through 5 flesh out those three things. And chapter 3 has been devoted to our speech, how we talk. And so several weeks ago we saw from verses 1 through 12 in chapter 3 the central role that our speech plays in our pursuit of holiness. And today we're going to see chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And it's about the source of how we talk and act. Is the source of how we talk and how we behave, is that source godly wisdom or is it worldly wisdom? Does it come from heaven or is it earthly? And so I want to give you right at the outset of our message the take-home truth that's at the bottom of the outline that you should have received inserted in your program. If you'll take a look at that, we're going to see together that our, our hearts 
determine the way we relate to God and to one another. Our hearts determine the way that we relate. Now that theme is found in these verses in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I invite you to read along with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's ask God to help us as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you that you have given us instruction in your word about who you are, about who we are, about our condition, about how we can access your grace in Jesus. We thank you that you have given those who have come to Jesus instruction about how we ought to now behave consistent with that profession, that belief, that confession. So we thank you, Lord, that you have given us explicit instruction about our speech and our behavior. Help us now as we look at the wisdom that comes from above versus that which is earthly and worldly and help each of us to examine ourselves whether or not we are talking and acting in ways consistent with what we say we believe. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the benefits of getting a bit older in ministry is that I sometimes have the opportunity to meet with younger men who are looking to go into ministry themselves and they're looking for advice on ministry issues. It's one of the things that I enjoy most, talking with guys who are looking to move into vocational ministry about ministry matters. And several years ago, a young man who was set to graduate from seminary asked me to meet him for that very purpose, and I readily agreed. I remember this not-quite-25-year-old laying out to me his ambitions for future ministry. And he pulled out a drawing that he had sketched of his future church's property and buildings. It showed a 50-acre campus, 50, five, zero, complete with a park for the community to use, a three-story library, a recreational facility, and, of course, a massive church building. And then he then proceeded to demean guys who have been in ministry for many years and have not amassed things like that. And he went on to tell me that wherever he's been, he's always risen to the top, that he was president of his high school class, leader of the ministerial class in college, student body president in seminary. And then he said this, when I'm at seminary and I look at the other students, I think to myself, you'll be working for me.
Now, we had just started this church at that time. So, as he demeaned those less accomplished than his ambition, ambitious vision, he was not talking about me, though I'd certainly fit the profile today. And so I was not personally offended, but I was greatly offended nonetheless. And I said to him, you know, there are many, many better men than you or me who have never accomplished what you've laid out. But God still considers them successful because they've been faithful. I'm glad to say that that young man never became a pastor. And now I know that that's an extreme example. And so we might be tempted to exempt ourselves from that kind of an attitude because we would never say anything so pompous. But that we would not say something like that does not mean, does it, that we wouldn't think something like that. And though our pride might be different in degree from that of this arrogant young man, it's indeed not different in kind. The truth is, when we compare ourselves with others, and we contrast ourselves from others, and we criticize others for not being and doing what we think they ought to be and do, then we may well be displaying the same pride and selfish ambition simply to a different degree. And so I say in the outline that we've supplied for you, if we're going to manifest the wisdom that's from above, we're going to have to think of ourselves, first of all, with integrity integrity. Now verse 13 says, is any among you wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good life. The reason I've chosen the word integrity is because when verse 13 says it needs to be shown, if you're truly wise and understanding, then that needs to be demonstrated, not just stated. And that's a matter of integrity because we get our word integrity from a Latin word that gives us integer. And you all know that integers are whole numbers. And the idea of integrity is that it's something that's whole, something that is complete, something that is consistent. And so if someone is truly wise and understanding, then their, their actions, including their words, will be consistent with that quality of wisdom and understanding. And so James is now calling out those who would claim to be wise and understanding. Who is it that thinks him or herself to be wise and understanding? If you think that about yourself, then let's put that to the test by demonstration of what you say and what you do. Now he's calling these people out. Why? Remember the context. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says that not many of you should presume to be teachers. You all remember that? Verse 1 of chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because those who teach will undergo a stricter judgment. So be careful to say that I'm the guy who knows or I'm the gal who knows, that I'm the one who is wise and understanding. And if any of you makes that claim, if any of you thinks he is wise and understanding, Let's put that to the test, says James. 
Let's see if it has integrity. Let's see if it's consistent in terms of the way we talk and the way we behave. So who is wise and understanding? Now, what are those words? What do they mean, wise and understanding? Many of you know that the word in your New Testament translated wise is Sophia. And so we get philosophy, for instance, from it. Philos is Greek for love, Sophia, wisdom. Philosophy is love of wisdom. And then there is an equivalent word in the first part of your Bible, the Hebrew Bible, chokmah, that's translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as indeed Sophia. And in both cases, Old Testament, New Testament, chokmah, Sophia. Wisdom refers to moral insight and skill in making decisions about practical conduct. Or to put it very simply, it's taking what we know and putting it to use for the purpose for which that knowledge has been given. It's practical knowledge. It's applied knowledge. That's biblical wisdom. And so you have wisdom. Who is wise among you? Who has the skill of putting into practice that which they know? And then there is understanding. And the word that's translated understanding, we get a fancy word epistemology from it. And epistemology is just the study of how we know what we know. And so the one who is understanding is the one who knows, and in fact they have the knowledge of an expert. It's someone who's a, a specialist who's able to apply his fuller knowledge to practical situations. And so wisdom has a moral quality, and then understanding has this intellectual quality. And James is now saying if you claim to possess those qualities, you're now going to have to show it by how you speak especially how you speak and how you act. And so it should be obvious that wisdom and knowledge or understanding are not the same. Wisdom is putting what we know to proper use. Over a century ago, Henry David Thoreau warned that we've developed improved means to what he called unimproved ends. We have better ways of doing stuff, but we don't really know why we're doing it or to what end we're doing it. But wisdom knows the end to which it puts its skill to use. And so wisdom was used in the Old Testament of the craftsmen who worked to frame the, the temple. They were called wise because they were using the skills that God had given toward his appointed end, the construction of the temple. And so James is calling out who considers his or herself to be wise and understanding. Now, how do you know if you consider yourself a person of wisdom and understanding? How do you know if you consider yourself to be such? Well, one sure sign is that you'll usually talk and talk and talk because you consider yourself qualified to opine to pontificate. I don't know what those words mean, but they sound cool. To opine, to give your opinion. To pontificate, to, to speak authoritatively about whatever the issue is. That's why James gives this, this warning in chapter 3 and verse 1 about teaching. And yes, it applies to those in official positions of teaching but its principle applies to anybody who would tell others the way the world works. This is how it should be. Listen to me, I know. 
And James says, if you are such a person, truly such a person who is wise and understanding, you're going to have to show that by your good life, by deeds done, verse 13, in the humility that comes from wisdom. He's saying that true wisdom produces good works, including words. And true wisdom produces humility. So it will not be, the truly wise and understanding person will not be the pompous, arrogant person who says, I'm the answer man or woman. I can do things other people are unable to do. I know things nobody else knows how to do. Like that young man who was graduating from seminary. It will be characterized by, verse 13 says, humility. That word that's translated humility is the word for meekness in your New Testament. The person who's truly wise and understanding will demonstrate the quality of meekness. Now, meekness was not a prized quality in New Testament times. It denoted a, a servile attitude that was unworthy, they thought, of a strong and confident person. But the Bible says that Jesus was humble or meek. And so Jesus said of himself, I am gentle, meek, that is, same word, and humble in heart. And Jesus blessed those who are meek in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This word then for meekness is not weakness. This word, same word that's translated humility, it's not weakness in any sense. In fact, in New Testament times, it, the same word was used of a bit that would go in the mouth of a horse. Meekness was actually power, but it was power under control. And just like that bit controls the power of that animal, the humility, the meekness that the wise and understanding one possesses causes them to control what they say and the ends toward which they do what they do. So who's wise and understanding? Who can opine? Who can pontificate? Is that you? Is that me? Do we find ourselves always ready to give our opinion about whatever it is? And to, in effect, become unofficial teachers? This is the way the world works? Be careful, friends. And this is why, practically speaking, because those who would teach, whether formally or informally, officially or unofficially, those who would teach need to be qualified to do so. Therefore, practically for you and me, hear this, opinions need to be weighed rather than just counted. You don't just take a poll to say, who all agrees with me? <laughs> you weigh the people. That is, are these people who have the qualities of wisdom and understanding? And you give weight to what people of wisdom and understanding have to say. Otherwise, there would be no need for warnings like this, right? I mean, if it were true that everybody had equal understanding and equal wisdom, then there would no, be no need to call out, do you really have this? And to warn those in the assembly to which James wrote to be careful about being the go-to person and then in turn be careful about listening to just anybody's opinions. 
They need to be weighed rather than simply counted. That's why the Bible says, be careful whose opinions you give good weight to. And so early on in Scripture, at the early history of the New Testament church, leaders are chosen. And they are to be men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and full of Sophia, full of wisdom. So that their opinion can be weighed, not just counted. The Bible tells us that those who would, who would lead in official capacities must first be tested. Not a recent convert and not a, a particularly young person as our seminary graduate. Not a recent convert or he may be conceited. And so I ask you, friends, who is wise and understanding among you? To whom do you give your ear? How often do you spout off your opinion? Whose opinions do you find worthy of respect? And it could be applied in a broader sense to what do you listen to on TV? What do you read in the magazines and on television? Who is wise and understanding? But this has particular application. Notice verse 13. Who is wise and understanding? Notice these two words. Among you. That is, within the assembly to whom James is writing. And so it's a church context. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 2, James says, suppose a man comes in and he's shabbily dressed. And he, verse 2 of chapter 2 says, he comes into your meeting, meeting place. And we noted at that time that the word that's translated meaning, meeting place is a Greek word, synagogue. We get synagogue from it. And so it's the place where they met. And now he's saying, who's wise and understanding amongst your assembly, those who assemble, assemble with you? It's a church context. And we ask the question, who's wise and understanding? Years ago, at our parent church, I was, during our Sunday school hour, sitting in uh, my office, which happened to be, we were in a very small building, not the building that we later built that many of you have seen in Flat Rock. But we were in our original, very small building. I was in my office, and it had very thin walls with apparently no insulation. How do I know this? Because I found myself during the Sunday school hour in my office. Normally I was teaching, but for some reason I wasn't and I was in my office. And that office had a wall adjacent between it and the nursery. And I could hear everything that was being said in the nursery. Yikes. There were women in there serving in the nursery who were gossiping and slicing, and dicing, and slandering. And one gal in particular was just having her tongue wagging, hinged on both sides. Just talking about everybody, including yours truly. And it was very, 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 very sad to hear. Her lack of wisdom, her lack of understanding, her lack of godliness did not keep her from talking. And unfortunately, it didn't keep other people from listening. James says, remember in verses 1 through 12, 
The tongue is a small member, but it can light an entire forest on fire. And then he warns us, ask yourselves the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And that should then dictate how much and how often and about what and to whom we talk. And it should further dictate from whom and about what and in what situations we are willing to receive such talk. Who is wise and understanding? Let them show it by the meekness, power under control that was characteristic of the Lord Jesus. And so if we're going to demonstrate wisdom from above, we are going to have to think of ourselves with integrity. Secondly, in your outline, we're going to have to think of others with purity. Verse 14 says, but if you fail to do that, if you fail to demonstrate this humility that comes from the wisdom that's from above, but if you fail that and you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now the word that's translated envy, sometimes translated zeal, and it's really a neutral word. It's not necessarily sinful. Envy itself is not necessarily sinful. Did you know that? It means zeal. It's sometimes translated jealousy as well. The Bible says God, our God, is a jealous God because God has zeal for His own glory. He is envious for His, his own glory. And He wants us, and we can be envious for His glory in a proper sense. And so as Christmas comes around, we'll hear much of Isaiah 9, for instance, of the increase of his government as Isaiah prophesies of the coming of the Messiah and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And how will all of that happen? The zeal, the envy, the jealousy of the Lord will accomplish this. So it's a, a neutral word in itself. Context has to determine whether or not it's negative or positive, sinful or godly, zeal, envy, jealousy. And that's why the NIV says in verse 14, it gives the word bitter envy. And then when it's coupled with selfish ambition, now it's a negative context. This is a negative envy, a negative zeal, not a zeal for God, not a zeal for others, a zeal for myself, a zeal for my own position, a zeal for my own interests. And I say in the second point that if we're going to demonstrate the wisdom that comes from above, we're going to have to view others, look at others with purity because our relationship with others, hear this, is to have no ulterior motive because it's not to be for the promotion of self. And so it must be pure from the taint of ulterior motives to promote ourselves somehow. Over the years, I've been asked a number of times, I don't think ever in our 11 years here, I don't think, if I wanted to get involved in a multi-level marketing company, sometimes known as a Ponzi scheme, and I have uh, always refused. And the reason I have is because not all of them, one, are Ponzi schemes. But even for those that are legitimate, I cannot trade 
my relationships with people for merchandise. One of the most precious commodities that we have in ministry is our relationships as sheep to sheep and shepherd to sheep. And if people ever got the idea that my relationship with them had some ulterior motive attached to it, then that relationship would be and should be ended. And if our view of ourselves is inflated, as we all, all of us, have the sinful tendency to be, if we're the focus of our thoughts and ambitions, then in turn, friends, it will determine how we view others. As we approach others and look at others, as far as I can tell, we can look at them three ways. Let me give you these three ways. They're not in your outline. We can do three things as we approach other people. Look at them. One is to compare. We compare. That is, we look at what they do better than us, and we're envious, jealous. So we can compare. What do they do better than me? Or we can contrast. Look at what I do better than them. None of those is the right approach, correct? The third thing that we can do, for lack of a better word, and I wanted them all to start with C, compare, contrast, and consider. Consider what? Consider that God has put this individual in my life as an opportunity to serve them for their good and to serve God for His glory. As we approach other people, having viewed ourselves with integrity because we have the humility that comes from godly wisdom, we now look at other people and rather than comparing what do they do better than me, contrasting what do I do better than them, we consider that God, a sovereign God, has providentially brought them into my circle of influence in order for me to serve their good and to serve God in His glory. Verse 14 says, and if you don't do that, if you don't really have true wisdom and understanding, the humility that shows itself in the way we talk and act, then do not, end of verse 14, boast about it or deny the truth. That is, if you find yourself speaking of people in negative ways, not designed to help them, then do not continue to talk about your knowledge and wisdom and deny the truth about what you truly are. That's what James is saying. We're going to move on to point three. But dear friends, dear friends, will you please, please consider how you talk, to whom you talk, about what you talk, And are you setting yourself up up as the wise and understanding one, yet not having the requisite humility that comes from the wisdom above? So how we look at ourselves needs to be done with integrity. How we look at others needs to be with purity. And thirdly, in your outline, how we think will then in turn determine how we relate how we relate ultimately to God, but in this context then, how we relate to others. How we think about ourselves, how we think about others is going to determine how we relate. 
Verse 15 says, Such wisdom, as demonstrated in the characteristics of verse 14, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. Now notice verse 15 has wisdom in quotation marks. And that's because the NIV has rightly noted that the context is saying this isn't wisdom at all. This isn't real wisdom, this is false wisdom. It's so-called wisdom. It sounds like wisdom because the person pontificates and opines. And it may sound sophisticated, but it's not for the good of those who hear or the good of those who are being talked about or the advance of the glory of God. And so it's a false wisdom. And it does not come from heaven, but earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Verse 16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And I say in your outline, worldly wisdom like that breeds broken relationships. Worldly wisdom, then, as characterized by what James says in verses 15 and 16, results in broken relationships. And he describes this kind of false wisdom as earthly and unspiritual and of the devil. It's earthly. It's not from God. It's not from heaven. It is, it's obtained by the, the opinions of those around me, thus earthly. But then goes on to say that it's unspiritual. And this word is contrasted with the new nature that's given to us by God in other passages of Scripture. And so, as opposed to our new nature when we're born again, born into God's family, regenerated by the Spirit of God, this is unspiritual activity. And then, he goes on to say, end of verse 15, it's of the devil, it's demonic. That there is a view of God and ourselves and others in the world that's contrary to the truth. That the world around us, the earth, earthly, possesses. That the natural man, apart from regeneration by the Spirit, expresses. That there is such a thing is ultimately of the devil, demonic. Because from where did it come, friends? Isaiah 14. Lucifer says, I will lift myself up. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, you will be like God. Pursue your selfish ambition. So it comes not from God, ultimately from the devil. And what's needed is a paradigm shift, a shift in the way we look at it. That's what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't look at it God's way, look at it this way, and they bought it. And in regeneration, when we come to God and the Spirit gives us new life, He is now giving us a paradigm shift so that we now look at it once again His way. We look at God, we look at ourselves, we look at, we look at those God brings into our lives from God's standpoint, not our selfish standpoint. And verse 16 says, and where you have this envy from verse 14 and the selfish ambition from verse 14, verse 16 says, where you have that, you have disorder, and every evil practice. Now, it doesn't mean 
that those who are envious and selfishly ambitious will commit every evil deed. I mean, you read that, I read that in verse 16, and you say, I haven't committed every evil deed. I've committed several. I may struggle with a number, but I haven't committed them all, so therefore this must not apply to me. It doesn't mean those who are envious and selfishly ambitious will commit every evil deed. But what it, does, what it is telling us is that if we're envious and, and self-focused, not that we'll commit every evil deed, but rather every evil that is committed always has worldly wisdom of envy and selfishness underlying it. Now you could spend some time thinking about that. Every evil. But ultimately, every evil has selfish ambition. And envy, bitter envy, negative sinful envy underlying it. And the person who's characterized by a worldly view of himself and others will, now hear this, will find dissension in the various parts of his life. So have you ever met someone who knows something about everything? I have. I've met them in church. And I'm not talking about anybody here. But I have met people in church context who know something about everything. And you can be sure where there's that kind of pompous attitude, it's not confined to just the relationships on Sunday. There will be, says James, dissension of all sorts. It will characterize that's per, that person's life at home, that person's life on the job. I have seen this over and over and over again. And I ask you, as I ask myself, consider, friends, your relationships. Are they characterized by the harvest of peace that verse 18 speaks of? Or are your relationships characterized by dissension at church, at home, at work? If so, you fit the profile of the person who claims to be wise and understanding but does not have the requisite humility that comes from the wisdom that's above. This kind of stuff is so deceitful, so ugly, and so pervasive as it spews out of the mouth from the heart of one who pretends to be wise and understanding. That it shows up in ways that are just hard to believe, really, sometimes. Until I see flashes of it in my own life, and then I can believe it. But a husband says to his wife, you know you're getting fat. You say, how horrible. I agree. But I'm telling you, over the years, I have counseled with many a couple where husbands have said those kinds of things and much worse to their wives. Who does a guy think he is that he can say that kind of thing? But see, this is a self-deceived guy. This is a guy who can say that to his wife, and when he looks in the mirror, he sees Brad Pitt. Really. And that self-deception, I am something, 
as evidenced in my wisdom and understanding. And you need to listen to me. And because I know the answers, I can say what I want to whoever I want about whatever I want. Or the woman who is jealous of another woman's clothes and her hair and her makeup. She just says, you know, some people spend all their time on themselves. Now, why does she make a comment like that? Because she hates it that she thinks they look better than she does. Because she's jealous, because she's envious. Or the mother who laments to her daughters, we can't afford what other people do. The poor mouthing is because of the envy and the selfish ambition. And that stuff is just, that's physical stuff. And then there's the the intellectual pride and arrogance that we have. You all remember Jeffrey Figer? Jack Kevorkian's attorney? Can't stand that guy, but but I love my enemies. I just, just grates on me a bit. I heard someone say of him one time, it must have been the case that when he was a kid, someone told him he was smart and he believed it. And he's carried that arrogance ever since. And so it will result in broken relationships. And it will be characteristic, not in just one realm, but in most, if not all, of the realms of our lives. But lastly, and most importantly, godly wisdom breeds beautiful relationships. Worldly wisdom results in broken. Godly wisdom results in beautiful relationships. I'm simply going to read verses 17 and 18, and for the sake of time, I have a definition of every word in these verses, but I won't take the time to give it to you. I'll continue it next week. But notice what verses 17 and 18 say. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, and considerate, and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. And peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Friends, as we conclude, here's my advice to you. We'll look at verses 17 and 18 next week. But let me advise you from the words of James, as I advise myself before you talk. Take a look at yourself and ask yourself whether you're one to talk. That's really what James is saying. Who is wise and understanding? Before you talk, ask yourself, am I one to talk? Before you listen, ensure that the person to whom you are listening is qualified to dispense wisdom. If not, don't listen. And if they say things characterized as James tells us that are of the devil and earthly wisdom, then do what God says elsewhere, correct them with godly correction. Humility comes, friends, from recognizing our own propensities and inabilities. And those who humble themselves, God will help. The Bible does not teach God helps those who help themselves. The Bible teaches God helps those who humble themselves. And so do you have the humility to recognize you don't know it all. You don't have to say it all. The humility to learn before we speak. 
to make sure we're qualified to speak before we actually do so. We've all, myself included, we've all failed. So what's the remedy for us? We humble ourselves before God, recognizing we cannot do this ourselves as sinners who naturally battle with selfish ambition and envy that work strife. And so because of that, what do I need? I need the Holy Spirit of God at work in me. But we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for those who have never had a relationship with God, and thus all of your relationships are characterized by this negative presentation that James has made, I offer the opportunity to do that now. In humility, recognize your own sin as manifest in the way you talk and act and think. Realize you're a sinner. Humbly admit that. But recognize that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserve. And repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you in humility now. I'm going to follow you rather than going my own way. And we're going to bow in just a moment. Let's ask God to forgive us, Christian friend, where needed. And those who have never come to Christ, I invite you from your heart to God in your own words, humbly acknowledge your need of Jesus as your Savior who died to pay the penalty for your sin and ask Him to rescue you from yourself and from His righteous wrath. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You again for Your Word for the infinite wisdom that's presented there, that though the last portion of your word was penned nearly 2,000 years ago, it is as relevant for us today as the day it was first written. Because you, all-knowing God, know us better than we know ourselves. You made us. So you know our struggles. You know our needs. You know how we, our propensity to sin. So thank you for this instruction. And thank you for the penetration of your word and your spirit. I pray, Lord God, that my brothers and sisters, as I, will take what you have told us and make application to it of ourselves, both in our relationships within the body of Christ, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. As a result, may we be changed further into the image of Jesus, the meek and lowly one. I pray for any who came here without a relationship with God through Jesus. And I ask that today is the day of their deliverance, their rescue, their salvation. We thank you and we love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.